Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Most of us are just trying to live the American dream, which includes the perfect partner, the perfect family, the perfect home, and the perfect lifestyle. What if despite having all of that from the outside, looking in, secrets were held tight to the chest, secrets that could put you and your loved ones in immense danger? Today, I want to tell you about one suburban family's disappearance no one saw coming. Joseph and Summer McStay lived in a quiet suburban neighborhood located in Fallbrook, California, with their two children, four-year-old Gianni and three-year-old Joey Jr. The couple had been together for six years and were introduced to each other back in 2004, where they were struck by love at first sight. One year later, they had Gianni, and one year after that, Joey Jr. was born. Then they decided to get married. Summer was a fierce mama who was known to protect her kids at all costs. She was, by all accounts, the perfect example of how a mother should be. They were your typical family just trying to live the American dream, and from the outside, they appeared to be picture perfect. They spent a lot of their time at the beach surfing together as a family. Joseph and Summer were very loved and known as great parents, while the boys were said to be happy and full of life. In November of 2009, the McStay family moved into a new home with big plans to renovate it and make it the perfect home for their family. Joseph worked remotely from home, building his custom water feature business, while Summer chose to be a stay-at-home mother to Joey Jr. and Gianni. According to family, Joseph and Summer couldn't keep their hands off of each other, and the issues they did face were the same ones all couples face. On February 4th of 2010, Patrick McStay called and spoke with his son Joseph. It seemed like he was having a typical morning and everything seemed fine. Joseph told his dad that he had a lunch meeting with one of his associates at noon, and he was in a hurry to get there. Summer was spending the day overseeing the day's home renovations and watching the kids. Joey Jr.'s birthday was also scheduled for that upcoming Saturday, so they had a lot of prepping to focus on. However, that evening, the family left their home, either willingly or unwillingly. Before they left, they left the house lights on, locked the doors, and took the family car. After days of not hearing from his son, Patrick called Joseph's younger brother, Michael, and asked him to go check on him since he lived nearby. He was too busy and didn't want to overreact. He assumed maybe his brother and his family went on an impromptu vacation. It wasn't until February 10th that law enforcement was notified that the family had been missing. When police initially went to the McStay home for a welfare check, they didn't go inside the house because they saw nothing out of the ordinary, so they left. Concerned, Joseph's associate, Chase Merritt, went over there after the police left, and that is when he discovered the McStay's dogs outside. The dogs, Bear and Digger, being outside really stood out because they were left without food or water. Joseph and Summer would never do that. Those dogs were a part of their family. This is all so strange. They just up and leave their house in a hurry one night, no bags or note or anything. Also, that is not a wellness check. Knocking on the door and giving up when no one answers is pointless. We don't need the police for that. Right. There could have been someone seriously injured behind that door, or even worse, dead. Just think about the Pettit family in our episode A Deadly Heist. They were being held hostage in their own house. The police didn't even notice that their dogs were left behind. Did someone eventually get inside to check it out? Yeah. On February 13th, Michael drove to the McStay's home with Chase, and they were determined to figure out what was going on. Together, they climbed into the home through an unlocked window, and they found the house to be a mess. 
There was rotten food on the counter, popcorn all over the sofa, clothes all over the place, and coffee grounds scattered on the floor of the kitchen. When Chase suggested they call the police, Michael wanted to wait until the weekend. Michael's reasoning for this was that in California, after 10 days of someone missing, the homicide unit gets involved. He wanted to make sure they were given all the resources if this became something serious. On Monday, February 15th, 11 days after the family was last seen at their home, Michael contacted the sheriff's department, who not only came to the home to investigate, but called in the homicide department as Michael was hoping for. At this time, Patrick noticed the investigators were actually handling the crime scene lightly. They didn't make an effort to put up the yellow tape to keep others off the property and tampering of the evidence. Instead, that day, they just locked the house back up until they could get a warrant. Four days later, the investigators finally got the warrants they requested to do a full search of the mistake's property and belongings. Since it wasn't deemed a crime scene yet at this point, with the police department's permission, Joseph's family and friends had been in and out of the house several times, trying to find clues as to where their loved ones went or were taken. This included going through bank statements and computers. Susan, Joseph's mother, even admitted to cleaning up the kitchen because of the rotten food left out and taking out the trash. Even though they were asked to put everything back where it was found, the entire crime scene at that point was compromised. You have got to be kidding. I totally understand the family's impatience to wait on finding clues to what happened, but why would you clean a crime scene? Right. That should have been an obvious thing not to do. I understand wanting to clean up rotten food, but that could have waited until after the crime scene was officially looked at by real crime scene investigators. Police shouldn't have even let anyone in the house until they collected evidence. This investigation is already a disaster. Did they find anything helpful? Well, San Diego police took charge of the investigation after that, and after pulling the surrounding neighbors' security footage, they determined that the family last left their home on February 4th. This is when the McStay's SUV was caught leaving their driveway at approximately 7.47 p.m. They put out a bee on the lookout, also known as a bolo. That bolo paid off because they got a hit instantly. Someone reported that the SUV was impounded from a shopping mall located steps away from the border of Mexico. There was nothing in the car that indicated any foul play. This brought them to their first theory that the family had gone to Mexico willingly. Patrick didn't agree with the police's theory that his son took his family to Mexico, so he launched his own investigation from home. He worked tirelessly for four years looking into his family's disappearance. If he was awake, he was investigating. He told the CNN reporter he rarely went a day without a phone call from his son, so after calling Friday and Sunday and getting no response, he felt it in his gut something was off. They would never go willingly, so deep down he knew he would never see his son or his family again. If he was in trouble, there was no doubt in his mind his son would have reached out to him. Good for that dad for trusting his gut and not letting it go. I mean, if you know your child, you know your child. And he knew that that didn't sound right. They think they just up and walked away from their life to go live in Mexico for no reason? Who are these people? Though Summer and Joseph carried themselves well, their past weren't as perfectly clean as you might expect. Summer never included her side of the family in holidays or events. In fact, this is something that stood out to Joseph's mother and was concerning to her. According to her, the night before the wedding, Summer called her family and asked them not to come. Throughout their entire relationship, Joseph's mother never met them or even crossed paths with them. As for Joseph, Summer wasn't his first marriage. In fact, in his early 20s, he married a woman named Heather and they had one child together named Jonah. 
According to family, Summer was extremely jealous of the relationship Joseph and Heather shared for six years before divorcing. Joseph was madly in love with Heather and was shattered when things ended, but ultimately decided to share responsibility for their child. By some accounts, Summer welcomed Jonah as her stepchild, but by other accounts that may or may not be reliable, she was jealous of the time Joseph spent with him because it was taking away the time from her and her children. Joseph began suffering from unexplained health issues, including headaches and nausea, but even after many doctor's visits, there was no official diagnosis. Some of Joseph's family became concerned, believing Summer had darker tendencies and suggested that he stop eating at home. Though Joseph didn't flat out say he believed that she could possibly be making him sick by poisoning his food, he did tell them that he would pay more attention to what food she was giving him. As far as we can tell, no motive was ever discussed between Joseph and his family in regards to why she might be making him sick. Despite other family members' suspicions of foul play, Joseph's mother and father didn't believe that that was the case at all. I have so many questions. Did police look into Summer's family? Are they like mafia or something? Could Summer have been a family annihilator? All of this is so crazy sounding. (laughs) It's very weird that her family wasn't around at all, even during the big stuff. However, I've learned as an adult that not all families are close. That's true. It's very possible they just didn't get along. And I know firsthand that a mysterious illness isn't necessarily anyone's fault. Sometimes they just happen. It all sounds like rumors anyway. Yeah, but this didn't change the fact that there was still evidence of trouble in the couple's marriage. Weeks before the family vanished, Joseph reached out to his mother to see if she could assist him in finding a good counselor to get their family back on track. They finally found a counselor he felt fit his family's needs on January 1st. The family went missing three days later. Steph will tell us how the investigation progressed from here. The last person to see Joseph McStay was Chase, the same person who went to check on him after the police's failed wellness check. You see, Chase was the associate Joseph was in a hurry to meet for that noon business meeting at the local Chick-fil-A. According to Chase, business was booming for the water company, and they had over 500 waterfall projects in the pipeline. It was clear Joseph was excited and planning well ahead into the future of his company in California. After that meeting, Chase remembered speaking with Joseph several times throughout the rest of the day. Around 8.28 p.m., Joseph contacted Chase again, but he was tired and figured he would just call Joseph back in the morning to discuss what he assumed was business. Little did he know that it would be the last phone call Joseph would ever make. This call could have been a huge clue to solving their disappearance since it was made 45 minutes after the neighbor's security camera caught the McStay's SUV leaving their driveway that evening. The question is, did Joseph really make that call, or did someone else make that call? Chase didn't call him back the following morning and tried again in the evening, but Joseph never answered. He grew concerned when he still couldn't reach Joseph on the 6th, and he never called him back. At this point, several of his associates had tried to reach out to Joseph, and when they couldn't reach him, they reached out to his family, letting them know that him and Summer weren't answering anyone's calls and didn't seem to be active online either. I mean, why would he call Chase, though, as his last call and not his actual family members? Joseph was close with his family and trusted them. My last call would never be my coworker or a friend. It would be my husband, parents, or siblings. Yeah, that is strange. Maybe Chase was closer to wherever they were than a family member? I don't know. I mean, it's possible, but can we talk about that car? Yes. 
Conjurers, if you remember, earlier Sham mentioned that a bolo led police to the McStay's SUV towed from a shopping mall steps away from the Mexico border. With no evidence of foul play, police assumed the family fled to Mexico willingly. However, Patrick told CNN that Summer was terrified of Mexico and would never take her kids there. Evidence later found on the McStay's computer would have him questioning if that was true, though. Upon obtaining the computer, they went through the McStay's recent searches, and someone had searched how to get a passport for Mexico. One week later, surveillance footage was uncovered from the Mexico border. It showed blurry CCTV footage of what appeared to be a family of four crossing over on February 8th. In the image, it appeared to be two adults walking one in front of the other, each of them holding a child's hand. Since that footage was taken on the same night their car was towed, it had to be them, according to detectives. Once the family and friends saw the footage for themselves, however, they knew it wasn't the McStays. Patrick was fed up with the investigation focusing on dead ends by sticking stubbornly to the Mexico theory. He decided to contact his friend Tim Miller, who was the founder of a search and rescue organization. As soon as Tim got the call, he hopped in his car and headed straight for Fallbrook, California. He wanted to see the area for himself and visit the McStay's family home. On the way, he called someone he had worked cases with in the past to join him, Steph Watts, an investigative journalist. Joseph's brother, Michael, met them at the home to give them access, and upon first glance, nothing was extremely alarming. However, one thing that was shared with them about the McStays was they never went anywhere without their double stroller. That same stroller was found in the garage. Okay, it could just be me, but why the hell would you care about a damn stroller if you're in a situation where you need to get your entire family out of the house and into another country in the middle of the night? <laughs> if money was missing from their safe or they forgot something like a life or death medication, sure, but a stroller... I think that's the point the family was making. Police are trying to say that they just went on vacation and didn't tell anyone or something. And the family is trying to point out that they clearly left in a hurry and were more likely in danger of some kind. Yeah, that does make sense. But what was their next move? Next, they drove to the border to see if there were any areas that looked like they could be used as a potential dump site along the way. The range was so vast on the drive to Mexico, Tim knew it would be a miracle to find anything out there. He was close to calling off the search when the investigator showed him the CCTV footage from the border, and even he was convinced that it was the McStays. At that point, everyone besides the family believed they ran away to Mexico. They even had servers come forward that say they had served Joseph and Summer cocktails. Over time, the leads were no longer coming in and the case was becoming colder. The case was eventually handed over to the FBI in April of 2013. On November 11th at 9.58 a.m., the local authorities received a call. It was from a motorcyclist who was out in the Mojave Desert in Victorville, which is 100 miles northeast of Fallbrook and 150 miles from the Mexico border. The motorcyclist found two shallow graves that contained two skeletons each. Each grave contained one adult-sized skeleton and one smaller child-sized skeleton. In order to identify the adult bodies, they had to use DNA extracted from their teeth. The two adults ended up being Summer and Joseph McStay. It was clear the other two remains were Gianni and Joey Jr., 
According to the records later made public in this case, autopsies concluded that all four victims had been beaten to death with a blunt object, and investigators believed the murder weapon was a three-pound sledgehammer, which was found in the grave with the remains of Summer and her son. Investigators testified they believed the victims were tortured before they were killed. This case went from a missing persons believed to have left on their own to a murder case, and they finally had their crime scene. It was also becoming clear to the FBI that the local investigators didn't do this case justice and actually missed vital clues focusing on the Mexico theory. Yeah, I agree. They wasted a lot of time on the Mexico theory. I mean, could they have saved the family's life? Probably not, but they could have either found their bodies faster or even caught the killer within days. They could have at least preserved the evidence. The family had no reason to up and flee to Mexico, but police never really looked into whether there was a plausible motive supporting their theory. The car parked at the border was reason to believe that theory. But as an investigator, you have to dive deeper. Exactly. From the beginning, one question the family had was, why would the McStays park their car at the border and walk over in the dark when they could just drive over the border? The car was spotted on February 8th between 5 and 5.30 p.m. But the CCTV footage of the family showed them walking over the border at 7 p.m. There's also no footage of the family from any of the shopping center cameras. So where were they for the two hours between when the car was parked and when they were on camera walking across the border? There was no real evidence of the family ever being in Mexico in the first place. Whoever did this was calculated and knew how to set it up in a way that would make it look like an intentional disappearance. On November 15th, the San Bernardino County Sheriffs took over the investigation since the bodies were found in their county. They had to review all of the information that was collected over the last few years. Time also wasn't on their side because the bodies had been left out and exposed in the desert. So much evidence could have been tampered with, eaten by animals, or blown away. Now that it was a homicide, they had to question everyone in the family. This included Michael, Joseph's brother. They were suspicious that in the weeks prior to the McStay family's disappearance, Michael withdrew money from Joseph's bank account. Then after the family went missing, he sold off some of Joseph's property. His reasoning for this was he figured the property was going into foreclosure. He wanted to liquidate some of Joseph's assets to give to his first son, Jonah. Um, okay, so listen, yes, it's weird, but at the same time, the home wasn't technically still being looked at as a crime scene. The house would indeed eventually go into foreclosure, so why not get rid of the contents in it? I wouldn't do it so soon, but I'd probably get a storage unit eventually if I knew his belongings couldn't stay there. Sure. I'm sure his brother was trying to do what Joseph would have wanted. It's just a little strange. It's a little. <laughs> but who else did they talk to? The next question were the other set of individuals close to Joseph, his employees. Joseph's business was doing extremely well, so well that it was valued at a million dollars. The first person they reached out to was Dan Cavanaugh. He worked for Joseph, managing his website. This is also the same employee who reached out to Patrick, worried that Joseph hadn't been responding to his emails on February 10th. The reason they had concerns about Dan was because on February 6th, he began withdrawing money from Joseph's company business card. He insisted he had approval from Joseph to access those funds prior to him going missing. 
He also claimed he got permission from the family in order to keep the business afloat until Joseph's return. In the summer of 2011, Dan sold the business that belonged to Joseph. The family was enraged that he sold the company without their permission. Despite the suspicious business dealings, he claimed to have no involvement and the investigators couldn't find anything to contradict his alibi. He doesn't give me murder vibes. If he had permission to access those funds to keep the company afloat, I get that. Selling the company was a bit of a blow, but we don't know how hard it was keeping the company afloat without his business partner. It doesn't sound like Dan was a business partner, but rather just an employee left in charge out of default. He really should have made sure the family was okay with his decision to sell before he made the deal, but I'm sure he just wanted to be done with it all. That doesn't make him a murderer. Yeah. So those are pretty much dead ends. (laughs) Right. But one major tip came into the police anonymously, asking them to look into Chase and anyone associated with him. You see, Chase actually had a criminal record, including a felony for burglary and receiving stolen property. This is the same person that spent over an hour with Joseph the day his family disappeared. He took a polygraph test and passed and claimed he didn't know anything that could help solve the family's disappearance. Joseph's family claimed they never would think to look at Chase because Joseph trusted him and believed in him. On January 14, 2014, he even mentioned he may write a book about the family and how Summer had anger issues and Joseph was mysteriously ill trying to point the blame at Summer. But it all came together on November 5, 2014, when Chase was arrested in connection to the McStay's murder. His DNA was recovered from the family car, officially making him the lead suspect. Chase was charged with four counts of murder and prosecution was seeking the death penalty. Prosecution shared that Chase had a gambling problem and his motive for killing the family was for financial gain. In the days after the family went missing, Chase wrote checks amounting to over $21,000 from the business account. He used that money to go on a gambling spree at some nearby casinos where he managed to lose thousands. The prosecution also pointed to a cell phone ping that placed Chase near a cell tower that serviced the area where police discovered the bodies. Chase clearly wasn't an easy client to work with because he went through five attorneys awaiting his trial. His trial began on January 7, 2019 in the San Bernardino court. Six months later, on June 10th, Chase was found guilty of the murder of Joseph and Summer McStay, as well as their two children. He was sentenced to death on January 21st of 2020. He now resides at San Quentin State Prison awaiting his execution. If not him, then who? With all the evidence stacked against him, I have no doubt he is the killer. Yeah, it seems like a really shitty reason to kill your friend and business partner, but I agree. The evidence points only to Chase. If it hadn't been for Joseph's family being adamant about who he was, this case wouldn't have gotten the attention it needed to be solved in the first place. Four innocent lives were taken away out of greed. Chase was not only close to the family, but showed plenty of signs you should look for in a potential suspect. He was the last person to see Joseph, the last phone call, he knew how much money the company was bringing in, and likely knew the mixed day's routine. The biggest red flag of all is he inserted himself into the investigation from the beginning. This case really goes to show that you can't trust everyone. Your biggest cheerleaders could be plotting your downfall, or something more sinister. 
your murder. In this case, the police needed tips from the public in order to overcome their own assumptions. In fact, most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Shan. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today, I want to talk about the crystal ruby. Ruby stimulates your root chakra and keeps you grounded. However, I chose this one because it's said to be a powerful crystal you can use for protection against anyone with bad intentions towards you or looking to steal your energy. It brings awareness to your mind and allows you to see other outlooks on life. One that may help you recognize when someone really isn't in your corner. Nice. And who are we kidding? Rubies are beautiful. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.